Our scripture reading is from 1 Samuel 16. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest. But behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. This is the word of the Lord. This fall leading up to Advent, we're doing a sermon series on the life of David called After God's Own Heart. And last week was the story of Hannah, who gave birth to Samuel, the prophet, who's the one who anoints David in our passage this morning. And Hannah's name means grace. And that her story is foundational to David's story means that his life is infused with God's grace. The story of the Messiah, of God's anointed, is a story of grace being born into the world. And a lot's happened since last week. We're skipping ahead 14 chapters in several decades. During this time, the people of God have struggled. They have suffered humiliating military defeats, and so they've demanded that Samuel ask God for a king so they can be like all the other nations around them because they think that's the thing that's making them weak and making them vulnerable is that they don't have a king. This doesn't make God very happy. God is their king, but God often gives us what we ask for. Even when it's not exactly his idea, God accommodates himself to our fickleness. So Samuel anoints a man named Saul to be king of Israel. But then Saul disobeys God, and, and, and God tells Samuel that he is going to start over with a new king. 
which brings us to our passage this morning. So God is going to show Samuel who his leader will be. And so we're going to look at three different things. First, what we foolishly look for in leaders. Second, what God looks for. And lastly, what is, is the one thing that we really need to lead? So what we foolishly look for in leaders, what God is looking for, and lastly, that which with which godly leaders cannot do without. All right, so first, what we foolishly look for. In the book of Ecclesiastes, it says, Of the writing of many books, there is no end. This bit of wisdom applies especially to the genre of leadership books. Is there really any category of books that has mushroomed more over the last 30 years as Americans have become increasingly obsessed with leadership? Every guru and entrepreneur has their own theory to sell. Names like Jim Collins and and Zig Ziglar have become household commodities. There's different ways to structure leadership. And look at it. There's five-tiered triangles four box matrices, and three concentric circles of leadership. Everybody and their mother has a theory of leadership, a definition of leadership, and a model of leadership that they are more than willing to sell you for a reasonable fee. And everyone wants to be either a great leader or to be led by a great leader because we know That when it comes to our company or our organization, our team, our country, or our church, leadership matters. So we want to know what makes for great leadership and great leaders. Are they born or are they made? How do they do what they do? And how can I be like them? It's a question I ask myself all the time. Am, Am I a good leader? Do I lead well? And and if I want to answer yes, what exactly does it mean to lead well, to be a good leader? It leads to these inevitable questions of the characteristics and qualities that we are looking for, that we put under the banner of leadership. I recently came across another fascinating book on leadership. It's by an author named Sam Walker who writes about sports for the Wall Street Journal. And it's called The Captain Class. The hidden force that creates the world's greatest teams. And so he looked at all the greatest, truly remarkable sports dynasties of all time. From all over the world. Australian rules football, uh, rugby, uh, Olympic volleyball, uh, women's soccer, men's soccer, basketball, baseball. To see what, if anything, all these greatest dynasties had in common. What, 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 what was it that made them so great and in their greatness so enduring? And what he found was surprising. He wrote, quote, The most crucial ingredient in a team that achieves and sustains historic greatness is the character of the player who leads it. Right? So he found that even more than talent or coaching or, or you know, X and O's knowledge, leadership matters. Leadership was the thing that set these dynasties apart. In the course of his research, Walker found what what he called the seven methods of elite leaders. I think they're kind of interesting, so I'll share them with you. They are as followed. Doggedness, playing to the edge of the rules, leading from the back. We, We might call that servant leadership. Practical 
communication, communicating using emotions and not words, courage to create conflict, and lastly, the ability to regulate your emotion, to, to have kind of an emotional dial that you can turn up and turn down. These are the seven characteristics that for Walker defined the so-called captain class. And the thing is, before he wrote this book, no one had ever given name to that. Even, you know, experts tended to value the star player or, or you know, the legendary coach and discount the value of the captain. In fact, in our analytics-driven era, the very idea of having a captain has been called into question, derided as the product of a, quote, old-school mentality that is rapidly passing away. But what Walker identifies and what he says has resonances with our scripture this morning, leadership matters. We know that. It's just that we don't know what we're looking for or we foolishly look for the wrong things. As I said in my introduction, when it came to anointing kings, this wasn't Samuel's first rodeo. It was his second. Years before, he had anointed Saul to be the one to rule over the tribes of Israel. What the scripture tells us stood out most about Saul were two things. One, when, when he was being anointed, first thing that stood out was he was really good looking. And the other was that he was tall. It says that he, he was a whole head taller than his fellow Israelites. And so when it came to their stereotypical idea of King Saul was straight out of central casting. The text, though, tells us nothing about his internal character, only about his external appearance. But we come to find that it was Saul's character that failed him. Eventually, he disobeyed the Lord. And the reason for this that he told Samuel in the chapter just before this one that we're studying this morning. Saul tells Samuel, the reason I disobeyed the Lord was was this. He says, he gives two reasons. He says, he feared the people. And he obeyed their voice. So on the outside, Saul looked fearsome. But on the inside, Saul was afraid. On the outside, he looked like someone who who could issue orders and give edicts. And everyone would listen to him without question. But on the inside, he was just listening for someone to tell him what to do. So we foolishly look for leaders who look the part, but who in all actuality will simply tell us what we already want to hear, will will reinforce what we already believe, and who ultimately will do what we tell them we want them to do. We foolishly look for leaders who, who can pull off the greatest trick of all. To look like they're leading the charge when actually they're just following the crowd. God tells Samuel that he's rejected Saul as king and he's going to select a new leader for his people. And God sends him to Bethlehem to the family of Jesse because he says that it's one of Jesse's sons who will choose to have Samuel anoint as his next king. And Samuel consecrates Jesse and his sons and invites them to sacrifice with him. And when he catches, when he's doing this, he, he catches sight of someone. Someone catches his eye. And that someone is Jesse's oldest son, Eliab. And Samuel sees him. He's the oldest. And 
Samuel thinks, oh yeah, this, he's it. Surely he's the one. Job done. Mission accomplished. And why does he think that? Because Eliab looks like a king. He looks tall and strong. Eliab looks the part. Eliab looks like another Saul. Samuel is still foolishly thinking that when it comes to leadership, what we need to do is, is look for the external characteristics. Right? Look on the outside. He hasn't yet learned the lesson that is so difficult that it's what's on the inside that counts. And things still haven't changed that much, huh? Have they? We still live in an image-driven culture where appearance is everything. It's, it's almost cliche to say that where people are written off all the time because of how they look rather than who they are. Just one non-trivial example, but if you're familiar anything with the research surrounding people who are overweight and the bias that they face in, in our, our culture, it's striking. Uh, one study that I heard about was where they would just show people uh, pictures of those who are overweight, and they would say, well, what words do you associate with this person? What do you, what do you think they're like? kind of judge their character based on their appearance. And, and people say, would say that they were lazy, or they were smelly, or they were stupid. Awful, awful things about them based merely on appearance. They judged their character based on how they looked. And see, we foolishly think that we are good at judging character just by looking. Looking at appearance rather than looking at how people live their lives. And so based on appearances, we'd pick Saul and Eliab every time. And you know what? We'd have our reasons. Saul had everything going for him. He, he could fight. He was intimidating. He was strong. He had the look of someone who, 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 who could get people to follow him. He towered over his contemporaries, right? When you have a leader, you want someone who, who inspires confidence in you, certainly. He had everything. Except he was missing the one crucial thing. Saul lacked heart. He lacked the heart to stand up to his people. And the heart to live his life in obedience to God. Especially when it wasn't the popular thing to do. See, what we foolishly look for. We look for people who look the part of the leader rather than people who have the heart of a leader. Right? Look the part more than have the heart. Which leads me to my second point, what God looks for. Right? We look for people to play the part. God looks for those who have the heart. And it says there right in verse 7, and this is truly one of the great verses in all of Scripture. God says to Samuel, when Samuel, you know, sees Eliab and he thinks, oh yeah, yeah, this is the guy. God says to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. And here it comes. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Right? We foolishly look at outward appearances, but God sees through to the heart. And what's the heart in, in, in the Bible? The heart is 
is what matters. The heart is where, where all the action happens. The heart is your character, right? It is your emotions, but it's your will. It's your intelligence. Basically, it, your heart is the sum total kind of of who you are. It is, maybe we could say in the words of Martin Luther King Jr., the, the, the content of your character. Right? The heart is inner beauty that radiates outward. And Jesse has eight sons, but he only brings seven of them to meet Samuel. And after Samuel sees all seven and God makes it clear that he has chosen none of them, he asks Jesse, are these all the sons you've got? And Jesse says, well, yeah, I guess there's one more. And what's astounding is that at this point, Jesse won't even name his eighth son. He says there's still, quote, the youngest, but he's out tending the sheep. He's out watching the sheep. And our translation here is being rather polite by rendering what Jesse calls his eighth son, the youngest. It's, it's not just a term that has to do with age. Jesse here says there's still the katan. That's the word in Hebrew, the katan. But he's keeping the sheep. And and Catan doesn't just mean young. It it means small, little. And here's the kicker. It also means insignificant. It's another way of calling David, who isn't named in our passage until the very last verse, almost the very end of our passage. It's just another way of saying he's the runt. Samuel asks, you got any more sons? And Jesse says, well, yeah, I guess they're still the runt. When it comes to what we look for, the runt is never an option. Samuel sees David and God says, he's the one. David is the one who has the heart to be a leader. And what is it about David's heart that we can glean even at this point, even from this little snippet in our passage? And for me, the most telling detail of all is, is that whereas his other brothers are there with Samuel seeking attention, while they're participating in this sacrifice, this meet and greet with the great prophet Samuel, while they are there auditioning for the role of king, David is quietly and humbly fulfilling the role of servant. He's being a shepherd because someone had to. He was watching the sheep. That was a smelly, boring, thankless job that no one wanted. A job best left to the Catan. But it was in his role as shepherd that he learned to lead, that he learned what it meant to be king. To risk his life for the flock. To fearlessly battle whatever wild beasts attack. To diligently tend to the mundane, important, and overlooked details of caring for a bunch of stupid sheep. That's leadership. And it was in serving that the runt acquired and demonstrated the heart that he would need to face giants. As we'll come to see as we continue to study his life, David is a very flawed leader. And, and at the end of his life, by the end of his life, basically he will have made a mess of things. But what's striking about David's heart is that unlike Saul before him or or many of the kings who come after him, David never cheats on God. For all his faults, God always has David's heart, even if he doesn't always have his obedience. 
The heart then we need to lead, the heart that God is looking for, is the heart of servant loyalty to God. But that's not all we can learn from the Catan. There's a couple lessons right here for us as, as we seek to be and look for leaders. And the first is that we need to be careful about who are the people who we write off. Right? The people who we, we, we fill in the blank in this statement. You know, blank could never be a leader. Because, you know, X, Y, or Z. And blank just, they just don't have what it takes. We need to be careful about who we write off. Because they don't look on the outside like we think a leader should look. We need to be careful about whose name we put in that blank, but we also need to be very careful, brothers and sisters, about putting our own name in that blank, saying, oh, I, can, I can never lead. God couldn't be calling me to leadership in his church. Now, don't write yourself off too quickly. And the second thing we need to do is we need to be careful about what we value, about what we're looking for. Right? David wasn't valued because he was just a katan. Right? He was just a little shepherd boy. He, he was just off doing his own thing. He didn't have what it took to lead in the eyes of his family. But neither did another of David's descendants. He was from the wrong town. Nazareth, of which it was asked, can anything good come from there? He was from the wrong family. People asked, isn't he just the carpenter's son? And he hung out with the wrong people. He was called a glutton and a drunkard, a, fl- a friend to tax collectors and sinners. He didn't have the right credentials. Who is this that he speaks with such authority? And he bucked everyone's expectations. Messiahs were not supposed to suffer and die. After the cross, two of his disciples were were walking and they had said, we had hoped that he would be the one who would redeem Israel. We must be careful what we value, what we're looking for, because everyone wrote off the one who was the greatest servant leader of all. One of the reasons that it's hard to build dynasties in sports is that they almost happen by accident because people don't know what to look for or value. They only look for mega talent or the superstar coach. They don't look for the Catans with heart. I've made that mistake before. I've, I've looked for the wrong things in picking leaders. I've, I've looked for quote-unquote leaders rather than looking for heart and raising that up. I've asked people to serve in leadership, and this was years ago who looked like leaders, but who didn't have the heart of leaders. And I've been burned by it every time. We need to be very, very careful in the church about how we select leaders. We've got to look for heart. We've got to look for heart. Because without leaders with heart, a heart of servant loyalty to God, we can never build a dynasty. We can never build something that lasts. So we've seen what we foolishly look for in leaders, and we've seen what God looks for. But this leads me to the last thing. What is the one thing we need that we can't lead without? What's the one thing we need? And the answer is right here in verse 13. After David is anointed, look at what happens. It says, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. 
And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. The sine qua non of godly leadership is the spirit. Without the spirit, our hearts will fail us. Because the truth is this. Apart from the spirit of God, David's heart really wasn't any better than Saul's. Right? What is David most famous for? Slaying Goliath. Absolutely. But I think the second thing that he's most famous for is a sin he committed, which has to be the second most famous sin in the Bible after Adam and Eve. When David is older, and if you know the story of David and Bathsheba, this will just be a summary, but, but if you don't, here it is, a, a thumbnail sketch. When David is older, he doesn't join his forces as they're out fighting a military campaign. He, he stays behind. And he sees a woman named Bathsheba bathing on the roof of her house. And he says, I want her, and because I'm the king, I can have her. And he was the king, so he had her. And the problem was she got pregnant. And, and, and this was a problem because her husband was Uriah, one of David's military leaders, who, who was out fighting David's war while David was at home sleeping with his wife. And David tried to arrange it so that Uriah would come home and sleep. With his wife, and, and then the whole David cheated with my wife and got her pregnant thing would take care of itself. Uriah would be none the wiser, but Uriah wouldn't sleep with his wife. Well, his men were fighting and dying on the front lines, and so David said, okay, plan B. And he arranged to have him killed in battle. And after that, David was confronted with his sin, and he wrote one of the most famous prayers of confession in the entire Bible, Psalm 51. And in it, he says these words, create in me a clean, a clean what? A clean heart, O oh God. And how is God going to do that? By renewing a right spirit within him. See, the spirit and, and having heart go hand in hand. And later, David pleads, cast me not away from thy presence, O Lord, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. David knows as flawed and as broken as he is, he cannot lead, he cannot be king without the Spirit in his life. Without the Spirit, David's heart is no different than Saul's. And without the Holy Spirit, our hearts are as cold as ice, as hard as stone, as black as soot, and as guilty as sin. Without the Spirit, we don't have the heart to lead or to serve God. But the Spirit rushes on David. He's been anointed. He's going to replace Saul. And what's the first thing that happens to David after the Spirit rushes upon him and he's anointed? He's called to play music to soothe Saul's troubled spirit. What happens when the Spirit comes is it... It disrupts things. It, it stirs things up. The Spirit comes on David, and immediately his life gets a lot more difficult. He serves the king he's going to replace, and, and Saul will spend the rest of his life trying to kill David. And David will go from watching sheep in one chapter to facing a giant in the next. But friends, that, that's what the Spirit does. It, it, it messes with things. It stirs things. It, it, it messes with our nice, simple, comfortable, bourgeois existences, right? Where we just go along to get along. And the world is how it is and everything is fine. You do you. Spirit can't let that happen. The spirit is a rushing wind, not a gentle breeze. 
And we're going to need that spirit blowing at our backs if we are to stand up against the zeitgeist. That other wind, that other spirit that blows, the spirit of the age. That's what the spirit does, though. When the spirit came upon Jesus, what happened? It drove him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he preached his first sermon, his text was from the prophet Isaiah. And it was this, that the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And when Jesus preached his, his sermon on this text. Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. It almost got him killed. When the spirit comes into our hearts, it's going to mess up our lives. And I mean that in the best way possible. But it ain't going to be easy. It's going to make us restless. It's going to make us want what God wants and what God values more than what we want or value or the world tells us it wants us to want and value. The Spirit disrupts. But the other thing that the Spirit does is it brings peace. It brings peace. The Spirit leaves Saul and he has no peace. But the Spirit rushes on David and it's David alone who through his musical gifts can bring Saul peace. Christianity is full of great paradoxes like this. Right? The Spirit disrupts to bring peace. God tears us down to build us back up. The Spirit kills in order to bring life. The best way to lead is to serve. Right? This is the work of the Spirit, which is God's life living in us. And you know, the greatest, most disruptive, wonderful, shattering, and peace-bringing work that the Spirit can do in any of our hearts. The Apostle Paul captures it in, in 1 Corinthians where he says that no one can say, Jesus is Lord no one can claim him as the Lord of their life except by the Spirit. And in Galatians, Paul says that it's by the Spirit that inside of us that we cry out to God, Abba, Father. If we want to lead, the first thing we need to do is follow Jesus. And surrender and serve him as Lord of every square inch of our lives, our bodies, our relationships, our families, our work, our hobbies, our church, and most of all, our heart. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please pray with me.